0: I'm going to invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark this morning. Mark chapter 14. Specifically, Mark 14, verses 32 through 42 this morning. Mark 14, verses 32 through 42. It's an old country music song that the first lines were, looking for love in all the wrong places, looking for love in too many... Y'all are so much better than the 930 service. In so many ways. I mean, it was just like, like, not a single person knew that song this morning at 9.30. So I knew, I knew I could count on you. Looking for love in all the wrong places. Looking for love in too many. There we go. Some John Travolta, Urban Cowboy fans here at 11 o'clock right here. So uh, that song is so emblematic, I think, of much of what our society really exemplifies in the way that they look for love in, in all the wrong places. And if there's nothing else that you take away from this message this morning, I want you to know that love has found you. That love has come to you this morning in and through the love of Jesus Christ displayed upon his cross. You you do not have to worry. Based upon your past performance, you do not have to worry. Based upon whether you know this or don't know this, this is true. You are loved not dependent upon your subjective experience of that love. It is an objective reality that is shown to us through the sacrifice of Jesus, exemplified for us in the Garden of Gethsemane with what Jesus experiences and why he experiences what we're going to read about in this passage here. Love is displayed. It's more than just mere sentiment. It's more than just words that are strung together. Love is sacrificial. Love is that mother or that father that gets up at 3:45 in the morning to be able to rock that uh, newborn baby back to sleep. That is love. It's not always sacrificial, but it is sacrificial. Love is the sacrifice that, that is exemplified oftentimes in the giving up of time, giving up of resources and money, preferences, priority. Love is sacrificial. And so we see the sacrifice of our Savior displayed beautifully here in in one of the most powerful passages that show us that Jesus is 100% God and 100% man, and he is that because he loves you. And he desires for you to receive his love this morning. We read of his love it is so sacrificial, starting in verse 32 of Mark chapter 14. And they went to a place called Gethsemane and he said to his disciples, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther he fell on the ground and he prayed that Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayal is at hand. Gethsemane is a a garden that is at the very foot of the Mount of Olives. In the original Hebrew word, it actually means olive press of all the places that Jesus could go, to this place of spiritual, physical, emotional agony where he is being pressed in this unique way. It's in a familiar place. It would have been familiar to the disciples of that first century world. It was familiar to Jesus. Luke 22 talks about this very familiarity to them here. Jesus goes in this moment and he displays his love, a love so often we consider shown through the cross, but I think we get a glimpse of the very sacrifice of our Savior by what he praise in this garden as the emotional psychological toll is displayed before us as jesus the infinite son of god speaks so honestly to his father now in this passage here it's not the main point of the passage but it is a point that i think is important for us to remember jesus did not go into this garden alone He comes to this garden, and he comes with three friends, Peter, James, and John. It's not coincidental that it's Peter, James, and John. Earlier in the gospel account, Peter, James, and John are the ones that see Jesus, where the heavens are rended open, and what happens there on the Mount of Transfiguration, they see the very glory and grandeur of Jesus displayed there on the mountain. And so they see Jesus, Peter, James, and John do, they see Jesus at his earthly highest now they will see jesus at his earthly lowest they see jesus in all of his grandeur now they will see him in all of his anguish it's not the main point of the passage but it is a point of the passage to know that jesus could have gone into this garden moment alone but he desired to have friends with him he needed maybe needed is not the best word he desired for Peter, James, and John to be with him in the garden, to pray with him in the garden, he did not want to face this alone. And, and it's, I think, important for us to see the importance of friendship in this passage here. We need friends to multiply our sort of mountaintop experiences, and we need friends to help us divide our garden experiences. We need friends to be able to share with those, those mountaintop experiences, but we also need friends when life turns upside down. We need friends to share with when life is mostly right side up. We need friends for the mundane and we need friends for the memorable. We need friends. Now, you don't need 72 friends, but you need a Peter, James, and John in your life. Uh, We're created in the image of God, a relational uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's never been a time where that relationship, uh, eternity past, has not been present. So we, as we read in the book of Genesis, we're created in that image, the image of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So God has created us as relational beings. And so think in your life, who are those people that really know you? Who are those people that really pray for you? Who are those people that love you in spite of yourself? Who do you love in spite of themselves? See, do you see that friendship is something deep to us that we need, and the strategy of Satan is always to isolate us, to always pull us apart, to always make us feel as if we can be sufficient enough unto ourselves. No man is an island, no woman is an island. Human flourishing, as God has created us, is in relationship with one another, but relationships require vulnerability. They require you to open yourselves up. I think at times we don't have deeper friendships because we're always holding ourselves. Now, we don't need to be open with everyone, but we need to be open with someone, someones. We need Peter, James, and John in our life. We need those people. I can look back upon my life, and I can see how God has blessed me with deep friendships, friendships that, transcended places that I've had the privilege to serve, friendships that that have undergirded me at all points of my life. And I pray that if you don't have those people that immediately come to mind, that you would pray for those people and that you in God's spirit would want to be that type of person. But notice also that the friends of Jesus in his moment of, of greatest need up into this moment in his ministry, they failed him in the moment. And I think that's helpful for us to see, too, because at times we, we want our friends to be what they can't be. And your friends are not intended to be your Messiah. You will be an imperfect friend, and you will have imperfect friends. Here, here are Peter, James, and John, in the moment of, of Jesus's greatest uh, human need, and they're three times asleep, We see, even in this passage here, sort of Peter's foreshadowing of his own temptation and his own failure as he denies Jesus three times. We see that Peter, James, and John, they're not perfect, and your friends are not perfect either. And so a part of friendship is the messiness of friendship. And at times, we don't have deeper friendships because we won't go through the messiness of it. But the beauty of long-term friendships are are those ups and those downs. There's the messiness and the beauty of being disappointed and disappointing others. It is the messiness of, of failure and forgiveness. It's the messiness of difficulty and disappointment. This is what friendship is. This is what it looks like. So it is with Jesus that Peter, James, and John, out of the 12, the three that are closest to him, that have the most memory of his earthly grandeur, and now they're being able to glimpse his earthly anguish, it's not surprising that they would, they, they would fail him in that moment. We need one another. We need friendships, but again, the main point of this passage here isn't a friendship passage, but it is to display for us just how much you are loved by God the Father in the sending of His Son. You are loved so much that verse 33 would tell us that Jesus was greatly distressed and troubled. Look again at verse 34. Look at the descriptions here. Jesus, His soul is sorrowful even to death. These words are rare words in the New Testament, they are rare words in Mark's gospel. It's almost as if Mark is holding these words for this very moment. He's got them over into a cabinet of words that he's going to dust off and he's going to pull out to use just for this moment because there's something about this moment that is revealing to us something that is wholly unique as God's eternal Son, who is fully God and fully man, comes to this moment of, of human anguish that has no parallel. There is no illustrative uh, parallel to this moment here in salvation history. It's in this moment that Jesus is greatly distressed and troubled. Now, if you go into a fifth grade Sunday school class and you begin to say, hey, give us some descriptors of Jesus's earthly ministry, you're going to hear kind, compassionate. You're going to hear tender. You're going to hear prophetic. You're going to hear, I don't know what words you're going to hear, but I assure you in those top 50 words and phrases, you're probably not going to get too greatly distressed and troubled. Soul is sorrowful, even to death. There's something unique about this moment, wholly unique about this moment, in your own experience of death. There are times where you will be by the side of one of your loved ones and hospice will come in and the nurse will tell you that the weeks have now become days and the days have become hours. You will hold the hand of your loved one. And it is not uncommon for me to have had the tremendous gift as a pastor and privilege to be in those moments where a family will say to me, Daddy dying. And if you could have only seen the peace upon his face. Holding the hand of a grandmother. Now this isn't always the case by any stretch of the imagination, but there have been times where, where someone would say, my grandmother, there was, there was a, just sort of like this angelic calm in this moment. A peace in this moment. And here Jesus is is facing and, and, and looking uh, forthrightly at the cross that is before him. And in this moment, as he, as he looks at what is before him, we read these words, not of peace, not of calm, but of being greatly distressed. Now, is he fearful of death? No. Is he surprised about his impending death? The answer is no. He's been predicting this. He's been foreshadowing this all throughout the gospel. This is not a carrot At the end of a stick where where God is baiting and switching him at this moment here. This is not what this is. He is not fearful of death. There is something in this moment that he is doing that no other God man will ever do. He is bearing the full weight and full consequences and full penalty of all of humanity's sins. He will be pierced for our transgressions. Here in the garden, the full weight of what he will drink, the cup of every crime, every act of malice, every injury, every act of cowardice, every evil, from the pride of the human heart to the prejudice of the human heart every gluttonous act to gossipy thought, all of this he will drink of, and it's in this moment at Gethsemane where he understands and he fully realizes in his humanity what it means to bear the weight, to bear the curse, to bear the punishment of every sin that had been committed in all of human history before, and every sin that will be committed that is even before us in this moment here. And so what we see is that Jesus will experience what you and I experience, but he will experience the full weight of humanity because what does sin do to you in relationship to a holy God? It separates us. It alienates us. Adam and Eve, when they, when they eat of the tree, they must leave the Garden of Eden. Before that, they walked with God in the garden. They talked with God in the garden. There was, there was uninterrupted communion in the garden, but when sin enters the garden, they must leave the garden. There's angelic messengers to guard them from ever coming back because what? Sin separates us from a holy God. Separation is tough. Some of you grew up in military families. Some of you maybe have had experience as a military family, and you know what, you know what it feels like they 're at the airport where you, as a husband, you as a mom, you as a a bride you 're there with your loved ones and, and they 're hugging you for the last time until they see you again nine months after your deployment. And maybe there's a little two-year-old that's grabbing on to the leg of his mom or to his dad and, and can't fully bear and understand the separation that's before him. Yes, we have modern technology that's wonderful, FaceTime and email and calling and all those kinds of things. But there's something about that reality that you as a parent know. There's never been a time in the existence of our marriage that me and my spouse have been apart from each other for more than a week. As long as I've been away from my son or my daughter has been three days. And to understand that nine months of deployment that is before you and the full weight of that separation. I thank the Lord for men and women who will make that type of sacrifice for the freedoms that we so richly enjoy. But understand the weight of of the separation that we see portrayed here in Gethsemane as the Son of God who is known eternal uninterrupted communion with his father is going to experience something. He is going to drink of the cup of something that that no human can fully even begin to comprehend, which is the full separation of all of humanity's sins laid upon one person, the full penalty, the full weight. We, we use this phrase hell on earth. I think we use the phrase rather casually at times, but but it is a phrase that we have to use when we describe things that are unparalleled. Concentration camps, hell on earth. Brutality of persecution, hell on earth. Christ dreams of a cup. A cup of separation The cup of the most horrific consequences and punishment. He suffers hell on earth so that we do not have to suffer hell in eternity. He drinks of this cup. Here is the the very heartbeat of why he prays in Mark chapter 14, verse 36. He starts his prayer with Abba, Father. It's almost as if Mark, he he wants to keep that Aramaic word there. He translates it, Abba, Father. Abba is saying, Daddy. We have all of this extent... correspondence of, of Jewish rabbis praying to God. You know, one word that they uh, very rarely use to describe their relationship to God, Abba. I mean, it is a two-year-old, three-year-old, four-year-old who's waiting for mom and dad to come home from work. Their nose are pressed up against the window. As soon as they drive into the driveway, they go out to the garage. The garage door is opening, and they say, Daddy! It's not just a word, it's a hug. It's not just a word, it's intimacy. And here Jesus says, Daddy, Daddy Father, all things are possible for you. He he trusts in the undenying sovereignty of his Father, his unending love to him. But he says, Remove this cup from me. But it doesn't end there. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. In this moment, he trusts in the Father's plan. He asked, if there's any way, let this cup pass over me here. It, it is almost as if he's, he's going back to the story of Genesis where Abraham goes to, to sacrifice his one and only son. He climbs to the top of Mount Moriah. He goes to drive the dagger down upon Isaac, his one and only son. And it's in that moment, God sends an angelic ambassador to say, stop. For Abraham, there was a ram in the thicket. There will be no ram in the thicket going toward Golgotha. Jesus is the ram in the thicket. He says in that moment, Yet not what I will, but what you will. Not my will, but thy will be done. He is perfectly obedient to his Father's plan because we have been perfectly not obedient. We, we, have, we, we have consistently said to God the Father, my will be done. There was another garden, not the Garden of Gethsemane, but the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve, they ate of of the tree. And in that moment, they're saying, not your will, because you told us not to do this, not your will, but our will be done. Surely there's something you're hiding from us. And so what Jesus does in the Garden of Gethsemane is he's reversing through his obedience the disobedience of Adam and Eve. And more than that, your disobedience, my disobedience. This is how much you are loved. If you doubt it this morning, if you're wondering it this morning, you are loved this much. Jesus loved you to hell and back. That's how much you are loved. And because he has loved you, trust him. Trust him for your salvation because he has purchased it fully through his perfect obedience and his sacrificial death on the cross where he drank of the cup of the holy wrath of God there for your sins and for my sins. He has paid it all, all to him we owe. Sin has left a crimson stain that he through his death has washed white as snow. And understand that this is a once and for all act. We don't have to go through the Garden of Gethsemane. We will not have to bear the weight of our sin or all of humanity's sins. He has paid it all. But this prayer, not my will but thy will be done, there is something about it that is a template because we're in Christ and we're following Christ, and there is a way in which we as followers of him come to places of our life where we're having to open-handedly say to God the Father, not my will, but thy will be done. It, It is a template for your prayer life. It's a template for my prayer life, because so often in life we see things from a finite vantage point, don't we? So we come to God, and there's a chronic illness that we're suffering with. Now, many people in our life might not know about it. Only those that are closest to us know this, this thorn in the flesh that you've been asking God to remove from you, asking God to remove from you. But as a follower of him, you're coming to him, beseeching him, interceding, asking him to remove this. But there's a sense in which you're coming to him as a follower of him who trusts him, saying, but not my will, but thy will be done. You're applying for colleges, and and you have your mind set on this school, and and you're 100% sure that this would be the best school to go to as a senior looking to uh, your freshman year. You got everything figured out. You know who your roommate is going to be. You got all the scholarships worked out. And it looks like exactly where you need to be. But as a follower of him, you're saying, now listen, if this is not your will, not my will, but thy will be done. You have job applications, and you're really, really excited about this one potential. It's the potential company that you've already interviewed for. You, you, I mean, the, the pay is going to be wonderful. It seems to be exactly an answer prayer. But as you come before him in prayer, you're praying, not my will, but thy will be done. There's something amazing about prayer when you understand the comfort of coming to God with open hands in your prayer life. There is a comfort because you understand that that He sovereignly answers our prayers and we come to Him open-handed. We can truly pray in a way that calms our hearts. We, We don't have to come to God saying, okay, here are all the reasons that you need to do this and you need to do it really quickly we don't have to come to him convincing him. He loves us. He loves us so much. We see it displayed in the sending of, our, of his son for our sake here. And so we can come to him with open hands, leaving our concerns before him as a holy God, knowing he will hear them and he will act upon them in a way that is best for you, for me, for us. In, in short, God will do this in your prayer life. When you come before him saying, not my will, but thy will be done. When you come to him with open hands, God will either give you what you ask or he will give you what you would have asked for or should have asked for if you knew everything that he perfectly knows. What a a comfort. What a comfort in the sovereignty of God that God will either give you what you ask for or He will give you what you should have asked for or would have asked for if you are privy to everything that He knows. This is the comfort of being a follower of a Savior whose Father loved Him so much that He would give up His Son there upon the cross for your penalty and for my penalty, and when Jesus, as the perfect obedient son, said, not my will, but thy will be done, your salvation there upon the cross was purchased once and forevermore, so trust him as your Savior, but don't just trust him as your Savior for for the great by-and-by in heaven, whenever that comes, but you trust him, in every aspect of your life, as you come to him daily on your knees with open hands saying what his son said almost 2,000 years ago, not my will, but thy will be done. He is a God who's worthy of your trust because he is a God who has proven without a shadow of a doubt his love for you. Let us pray. So it is God that we come to you this morning grateful that you are a loving father. A loving father who experiences as a father what we cannot begin to even imagine. We thank you for the perfect obedience of your son who drank from the cup of separation and punishment and the wrath of a holy God that each and every one of us deserve because we are sinners. We're sinners whose sin separates us from you, a holy God. And so we thank you that your Son and our Savior said there in the garden, not my will, but thy will be done. In that very garden place where where in the very book of Genesis, Adam and Eve said to you, not your will, but our will be done. In another garden, Your son would say what reverses and gives us hope as we trust not in our will, but in your will. I pray for each of us that are here today. And there's uncertainty before us. There are decisions before us. And we come to you and we come to you praying as finite human beings, trusting that you know what is best as we offer open-handedly our needs, our requests before you. We trust you with our children. We trust you with our church. We trust you with the communities in which we live in, the uncertainty that is all around us. We, we pray, not our will, but thy will be done. Give us grace when our actions are not this, our spirit is not this. Let us be reminded that, that you love us no less in those moments. Your love is objective. Your love is firm and it is fixed. In Jesus, we pray this in his name. Amen.